And we're going to pick up where we left off uh, this morning in our passage. I remember uh, one of the pastors I grew up with, he said that a sermon is like a fishing worm. He said, no, a good sermon is like a fishing worm. You can cut it off anywhere and it'll still wiggle. And so I'm kind of cut off this morning in our passage. And uh, so we're going to pick up there uh, where we left off in Ephesians chapter 2. Great chapter here. Let me read the 10 verses for us. We didn't do that this morning, but let's read. And may our Lord, by His Spirit, allow His words penetration. So verse 1, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of, age, remember, of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved from faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we're looking at these 10 verses, and these verses are a section. And by the way, just one indication of this section is the fact that you have the word walked in verse 2, and you have the word walk in verse 10. And what we have is a change in our walk from how we walked in our sins to now how we are to walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. But we've titled this section, or I have, Saved by God's Gracious Power. And again, let me just um, remind us or reiterate that I've chosen those words based on what's happening in these verses. The word saved is the word that Paul gravitates toward and begins to use in verse 5, and then again verse 8, to describe, to summarize, to lasso all of what God is doing for us. Saved by His gracious power. The word grace is going to now start, start, going to, start to um, present itself to us in the verses that we're about to look at. And then this idea of power. Where does this idea of power 
come into play in this passage. Well, again, chapter 2, verse 1, it starts with this word, and, which, not a terribly exciting word, but indicates a connection, a conjunction, something, two things are being connected. The last half is an easy connection. What about the first half? Well, probably our best bet is to link it kind of back to verse 20, and verse 20 has the word dead, chapter 1, verse 20, just as chapter 2, verse 1 has the word dead. And the context is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And in verse 20, he begins talking about what that power wrought in Christ by raising him from the dead, by seating him at his right hand, by putting everything in subjection under his feet, by giving him his head over all things to the church. All of that power that God wrought in Christ that is available to us and now back to you. Okay, and you, speaking of this power, and you who were dead in your transgressions and sins. And so we've got this passage saved by God's gracious power. And this morning we looked at the first three verses and we focused on the condition of those saved by God's gracious power. That was verses 1 to 3, and really the condition in one word is dead, spiritually dead. And the passage, the verses that we want to look at, and we'll try to keep moving a little bit here through these, but the, but the verses we want to look at here this evening, verses 4 to 10, verses 4 to 6 are going to present before us the actions of God's gracious power in saving us. What were those specific actions of God's gracious power? And then you can see the first word of verse 7, so that, or that, depending on your translation, so that, and it's introducing a purpose statement. Here's why God has done this in order that, so that, and now you've got the purposes for God saving us by his gracious power. And so that's what we want to look at here this evening are the actions and the purposes of the God who saved us by his gracious power. Now, when we left off this morning, we left off in rather a dismal point that we are, were, prior to our salvation, we were, what, participants in our sinful culture, slaves of our flesh and of our mind, children of wrath under divine wrath. Verse 4 tells us, but God. Now, what would motivate God to rescue people like us? Terrible, horrible people like us. What would motivate God to do that? And the passage begins, actually, these verses by giving us some of the attributes behind God's actions. We're going to get to those actions of God's gracious power, but it's who God is that is what caused him to act. And specifically, we could, of course, bring in God's power. That's that's the overall context here. But verse 4 brings up some of his attributes, things like mercy, Attributes like love. Verse 5 will add 
grace. What is love? God rich in mercy for his great love. Great love. Love is sacrificially working for another's best. Okay, love is, well, it's kind of like what you feel at the marriage altar, right? And everything's perfect and everybody's beautiful and the music is stunning and everything. And you think that's love, but you know, love is sacrificially working for another's best. That's agape, God-like love. And verse 4 indicates that it is out of that love that God then extends mercy. Mercy is rooted in his love, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Mercy is an emotional response to the pitiful, hopeless situation of someone in need. Need, not deservedness, triggers mercy. Remember when we were in Cambodia, and um, when we were there, I don't know, I guess almost 20 years ago, I guess, wow, 19 years ago, we would be out on the streets, whether in the city area or village areas, and you would see you would see Cambodians who are missing arms and legs because of landmines. This is Pol Pot, uh, the man who came in and ravaged his own country. You would see people missing parts of their face from being burned by acid. And some of them you would look at and you just, you almost couldn't look at them. It's just so horrifying. You'd, you know, they're missing a nose and they've got, you know, straws where your nostrils should be to try to help. I mean, it just, you would turn away in horror. But these people would come up to you and they would go like this to you. And they're asking for something. And you wouldn't give to them because they look so wonderful or because of some kind of a relationship but you would you would be moved to pity because of their desperate situation. That's what mercy is. Mercy is moved by the need of somebody that's in a desperate situation. And out of love, God extended mercy to sinners who could not rescue themselves. Yes, God is powerful. He's omnipotent. He has all power, but thank God he's rich in mercy. Imagine a God who is omnipotent, who, who is all-powerful, but he's not rich in mercy and he's not great in love. But here is a God who is all-powerful and he's rich in mercy and he's great in love. And he directed that merciful love toward us. Remember, he did not do so toward the angels who fell. But he did toward us. I think of the woman of Canaan in Matthew 15, 22, who cries out to Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She's begging as a Canaanite, not out of a sense of deservedness, but out of desperate need. That's a cry for mercy. And it is out of these attributes that God then acts. He shows mercy. And we see his three actions of gracious power in saving us here in verses 5 and 6. And you can even number these in your Bible so you've got them. 
So verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's number one. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. That's number two. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's number three. These are the three actions of God's gracious power in saving us. He made us alive together with Christ. If anybody has a King James Version, it uses the verb quickened. Sounds like he makes you faster. It's old English for to make alive. This is what we needed in order to be brought back from the dead. A dead person doesn't need more medicine. They don't need more reform. They don't need some reformation. They don't need somebody to move them a little bit. A dead person needs life. And what God did with his great power, being rich in mercy and in his great love, he brought us to life. This is a radical act. I think of the story in 2 Kings 13. You remember reading this where Elisha the prophet dies? And then there's this band of raiding Moabites, and one of them dies. And they need a place to bury their comrade. And so they, oh, hey, look, here's this grave. And they, they throw their dead comrade into Elisha's grave. And he hits the lysis bones and he jumps up and comes back out again. You know, that's an act of power. I mean, right there, you know, you throw your dead guy in, he comes back to life. You wish you could do that in modern military. You know, hey, let's just put him in there. You know, bring him back out again. Uh, but that's, 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 bringing, that's being brought back to life from the dead. And it's at this point in chapter 2 that Paul brings in the grace of God by grace you have been saved. And this now becomes the focus more than God's mercy. And I, I don't know if this is a best way to look at it, but I look at, kind of look at God's mercy and grace are the twin offspring of his love. We know from verse four that mercy is, uh, flows out of his love and perhaps his grace does as well. But mercy and grace Love God sacrificially and love chooses to work for our best. So then he pities. This is his mercy. He pities our desperate state and our tragic fate. Grace is that undeserved divine enablement. It's God's undeserved power that enables what he wills beyond what is humanly possible. And you may be familiar with this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This passage links grace and power. This is where Paul has that thorn in the flesh, you may remember. And he says, Lord, deliver me from this. Three times he prays. And God says to him, no, you're going to have this thorn in the flesh. But he says this, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. There's a link between grace and strength. I think sometimes we can focus so much on the undeserved in grace, which grace is undeserved, but we can focus so much on the undeserved, we lose the idea of grace as power, grace as strength. 
And this is, of course, what we need just on a daily basis to live the Christian life. Paul, I think in all of his epistles, I didn't run through them here, but he begins, and in many of them, he ends with prayers for the grace of God on the people that he's reached out to. But think of mercy and grace like this. Think of the king who forgave his servant 10,000 talents in Matthew 18. So here's a man who can't pay. The king mercifully pities the man who could not pay. His grace is the means he has then to absolve the debt and absorb the consequence. I mean, we tend to think of the 10,000 uh, these, you know, this the amount of money, the ten thousand talents. They, oh man, this poor guy. I mean, think of all the money he owed, and you can hear equivalent. You know, this is how much money it would be in modern day terms. You know, it's this huge, unpayable debt fortune this guy owed. Okay, but kind of think of it backwards. Think of the king who now forgives this debt. I mean, this is a huge debt to pay, and he just he just absolves the debt. I mean, he could probably use that money too. It's huge. So he has mercy on this servant who can't pay, but he has the means to say, okay, we'll just, we'll just absorb that debt of yours and we'll just forgive it. That's kind of like grace. God in mercy withheld what we deserve and then by his powerful grace worked in such a way that our entire state and fate were changed eternally. So he, first action of divine power, gracious power, he, he um, verse 5, he makes us alive. Verse 6, he raises us up with him. That he makes us alive from the realm of the dead to the realm of the living. He raises us up from the realm of the impotent, the realm of the impotent to the realm of the victorious. And Christ being raised up refers to his victorious resurrection after paying for our sins. Our being raised with Christ means that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Our old man has been crucified. We are no longer enslaved to sin, and death has no more dominion over us. We are now alive to God through Jesus Christ, and we can present to God our bodily members for righteous purposes. And not only were we made alive, we were raised up with Christ. If I go back to that guy, that Moabite raider who died, they throw him in the tomb, and he comes back to life. Well, it says he stood on his feet. He didn't just just come alive and just keep lying there in that grave. He stood on his feet. Think of Christ, came to life, he came out of that tomb. Think of Lazarus, brought to life, came out of that tomb, raised up with Christ. And then you have this third action of power, and that is he seated us together with Christ from the realm of Satan's domain to the realm of Christ's reign. God exalted Christ, this is chapter 1, and seated him over every other power in existence. Christ was seated in a completely different domain, or he's head over all creation, head over all the church. And likewise, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. By being seated with Christ in the heavenlies, believers are reflecting their existence in a new domain. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. We are not of this world. We share Christ's exaltation with him and experience his glory. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are positioned 
to defeat sin and live righteously. And this term in the heavenlies, it's only used in this way in the book of Ephesians. Five times in the New Testament, this phrase in the heavenlies, only in Ephesians. It's in the heavenlies where our blessings come from. It's in the heavenlies where Christ was seated far above all principality and power and might and dominion. It's in the heavenlies where we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's in the heavenlies. Uh, where you have rulers and authorities, angelic rulers and authorities walking, and it's in the heavenlies where you have rulers, uh, wicked rulers in high places there in the heavenlies. This is all taking place in the heavenlies. And when Christ, with Christ we're seated there in the heavenlies. And it's a reminder that the church is not just an earthly organization. This is not just a social club. If you find a church, basically it's just a social club and just all about life here and now and what you can do here. That's a wrong focus for a church. It's not a social club. The church really sits in the heavenlies with Christ. Our head is in the heavenlies. We are seated with him. We live out his headship on earth. We are the visible, his visible body, but our head is in heaven where we are with him seated spiritually. This is reality. That's the reality of the church. This is not just a physical, earthly organization. Our blessings come from the heavenlies. We're citizens in a different place. I think of Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail. Now, Paul will bring up later in 1 Thessalonians, and he will talk about what happened at Philippi. It evidently was brutal, and it was shameful. He was a Roman citizen, and he was treated shamefully, and it was painful. He brings it up again, like as if that really hurt in a lot of ways. But they're in that jail, but they're not languishing in there. They're in the jail, and remember what they're doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God. They're they're existing in a different domain. Their bodies are in prison, but their spirits are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They're living out their citizenship in a different place. There's a neat description. This is a letter that was written in the 100s A.D. Okay, so what would that be? Like 2,000 years ago, think think of fellow, our fellow believers, people like you and me, living 2,000 years ago, how would an unbeliever describe our fellow Christians 2,000 years ago? Okay, Here's the words of an, of an unbeliever um, looking as a spectator at these Christians. He writes, again, this is like 182nd century. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind, either in locality or in speech or in customs. Okay, we don't come to church and speak our own little secret language. They do not live apart in cities of their own, nor do they speak some different language or practice some extraordinary way of life. Nor yet do they possess any invention discovered by the intelligence or study of ingenious men, nor are they masters of any human dogma, as some are. They live in cities of Greeks or barbarians as the lot of each is cast. They just live wherever they are. And they follow the local customs and dress and food and other details of daily life. 
Yet the constitution of their own polity is remarkable and admittedly paradoxical. They live in their own hometowns, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, but endure all hardships as foreigners. Every foreign land is home to them, and every home is foreign. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. That's describing believers 2,000 years ago. That sounds like me. Sounds like you. These were God's actions of mighty power. His gracious power at work in saving us. But why? Why? What would be his purposes? I mean, outside of his attributes we mentioned earlier, what would be his purposes in reaching down to people dead in trespasses and sin? What would be his purposes in doing that? And saving us by his gracious power. Well, this brings us into verses 7 through 10. And again, verse 7, so that, I mean, here's the purpose, so that, why did he do all this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what I put down as the first purpose, to display eternal kindness. You could almost put to showcase his grace eternally, to display eternal kindness. I mean, verse 7, in the ages to come. So there's the age of this world, the age in which we're living. There's the age of this world. There are ages to come. And in the ages to come, he's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. We have not even begun to experience his kindness. I mean, for by grace are ye saved through faith. It's Kind of a past tense. We'll talk about it in just a minute. I mean, all the grace that's already been poured out upon us, we haven't even begun to see his kindness. And he did all of this so that in the ages to come, he would just keep showing, displaying, again, new depths of the riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's kind of like, do you do this at Christmas? Like at Christmas, maybe I should ask you, I don't know. You know, at Christmas, do you open the nicest gift first or the smallest gift first? Probably everybody's different, right? But we kind of like to start with the small and we work our way big. We try to do like for birthdays, you know, you start with the small and you kind of work. You know, start with the small and, oh, this is really neat. I thank you so much. Oh, by the way, here's this too. They open it. Oh, wow, thank you. I've been wanting that, you know. I kind of think maybe that's it. Oh, by the way, this too is, oh, wow, this is, you know. And then you kind of wait, you know, you're, you're building to the crescendo of here's the, okay, this is your this is your real gift. Oh, dad. Oh, mom. You know. And, yeah, I, you know, who can say what eternity is like? But, you know, you think of, okay, the God who worked in your life and let you hear the gospel. Oh, that's just an unbelievable. Oh, the circumstances behind that even, that you got to hear the gospel and somebody else didn't. That's amazing. And God worked in your heart and you accepted it. That's amazing. I don't know God has led you through your Christian life. I mean, that's just unbelievable. His provision and his kindness and his gentleness and his love, his shepherding. That's just amazing. 
but it's like the gifts just just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And it's like in the ages to come. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's this. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, and there's this. Oh, oh, that's too much. No way. I mean, in the ages to come, you see, I mean, this is one of the verbiage, the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's another kindness I want to show you. Oh, that's too much, Lord. That's why he did what he did. And then verses 8 and 9, he heard this purpose and displaying his gracious power like this is to save us in a way that prevents human boasting. To save us in a way that prevents human boasting. And there's a lot in verses 8 and 9 about salvation, about being saved. This is the term that Paul begins to use in this passage. This, this term by grace, are ye saved? Okay, this is a tense, just to be a little technical. It's a tense in Greek, perfect tense, signifying a past action with ongoing results. You were saved and you remain saved. King James English, you are saved. It's like a present and a past. You are saved, past tense. You were saved and you remain saved. And salvation is on account of God's grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Very important here, grace. It's on account of grace we're saved through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is the means, not the cause. Faith is the hand that opens the gates of the dam so that the waters of God's saving grace flow out to the lost sinner. Faith is not the cause, it's the means. This is more important than we might realize. An instrument that is weak or flawed can still do the job. You don't need a perfect hammer to nail the nail. And our faith and repentance are imperfect, weak, and flawed, but as long as they're directed toward Christ, they access the saving grace of God. Even a weak hand can open a floodgate on a dam. Even a weak faith, but in Christ, can open the floodgates of God's grace. I remember reading a story in a theology, uh, theology book one time about a guy who was demonstrating weak versus strong faith. And he was talking about this and told the story. I don't know if it's a true story, but told about a guy who was um, he was out on there. It's like this river, this um, frozen river, and it was ice. But this guy was on his hands and knees, and he was carefully trying to feel his way forward in the ice. He was afraid the ice was going to break through. You know, he's just kind of gingerly putting his weight on the ice like this. And then he hears this clip-clop, clip-clop, and he looks, and here comes this horse-drawn um, horse drawn sled right down the middle of the river, right on the middle on the ice. Like, oh, you know, here I could be just walking. And I was weak, both putting their faith in that river, but one with all the confidence or faith on that ice, but all the con- one having all the confidence. But again, faith being the means, the instrument, And all God's work of saving us is a gift from God. If you look at verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, that this cannot refer back to the word faith. It may seem like it, but there's there's a disagreement in gender in Greek grammar. So this does not refer back to faith. This seems to refer back to the whole thing. All of God's work of saving us is not from us. It is a gift of God. God's gift. Very emphatic. 
And God's method of saving prevents human boasting, not of works so that no one may boast. When it comes to salvation, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Charles Wesley, we sang one of his songs this morning. And on February 24th, 1838, that was a few years ago, Charles Wesley had a toothache. And he asked Peter Bowler, a Moravian, to pray for him. And Peter, this Moravian, asked him, he said, this Charles Wesley said, do you hope to be saved? And Wesley said, yes. And Bowler said, for what reason do you hope it? And Wesley replied, because I have used my best endeavors to serve God. That's his hope. Okay, just wait. Story's not done. Um, He shook his head and said no more. I thought him very uncharitable, saying in my heart, what? Are not my endeavors a sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. About three months later, May 21st, 1738. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ. My temper for the rest of the day was mistrust of my own great but before unknown weakness. I saw that by faith I stood, by the continual support of faith, which kept me from falling, though of myself I'm ever sinking into sin. (laughs) Three months, what a contrast. February, it's my endeavors. I've got nothing else to hope in. Three months later, you know, I'm weaker than I ever realized it was. I stand by faith. Think of the testimony of a man named George Lyle. George Lyle got saved in 1773. Eventually he was freed. He was a slave here in America, down in Georgia. He was freed by his master, unbelievable evangelist. But he says this, he says, I found my way wherein I could escape. I'm sorry, I found, quote, I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell. Only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which caused me to make intercession with Christ for my poor, poor, immortal soul. It's all faith. It's no human boasting. He says, I found no, no way where I could escape. There's no escape. But the merits of Christ. And then the last purpose here in our passage, verse 10, to enable us to walk in the works he has prepared for us. To enable us to walk in the works he has prepared for us. And you look at verse 10, we are his workmanship. God's masterpiece. This word workmanship is only used in one other passage in the New Testament, and that is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. And the context of Romans 1 verse 20 is creation. Let me just read you. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. What has been made is the same word that's translated workmanship in chapter 2, verse 10. It's a context of creation. We are his created thing. We are what God made. 
And it's not talking about our birth as a human because the next phrase says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're talking about being a new creation, a new creature. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is a creation on the same level of power that brought our world into existence ex nihilo. And being God's creation, being his workmanship, look at what he did. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, not saved by good works, but we're saved to good works. And look at this last phrase, this last clause, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I don't fully understand that, do you? How can God pre-prepare things for us to do? But here's this God who is at work before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1. He's at work in your life. He's at work in my life. Before the foundation of the world, he's at work. And there's these actions of gracious power on our behalf, whereby grace we're saved through faith. And he does all of this. He creates us new in Christ Jesus because he's got works that he's prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And remember again, verse 2, formerly you walked in your sins. And now here are these good works that you are to walk in. Now, so here's my question for us. Have you found the works which God pre-prepared for you to do? Are you doing? Have you found them? Now, there's people on this planet and they have no idea why they're here. They get up, they eat, they work, they sleep, they work, they sleep, they eat. I mean, they just go through the cycle of life and they've never figured out, why am I even here? And yet God has a purpose for each one of us. Have you found it? I think of the story of Hudson Taylor who wrestled with God about founding the China Inland Mission. He resisted. He could not trust All these people were dying. He knew it. God wanted him to start a mission board. He couldn't do it. And for two or three months, he wrestled with God. He scarcely slept night or day. He thought he would go insane. He could not do what God was asking him to do. There's a seven-week break in his journal. Starting in mid-April, his journal just goes blank. Finally, June 25, it's a Sunday. He walks out into the sand there in England by the receding tide. His soul is in agony. And the thought finally came, if God gives us a band of men for inland China and they go and all die of starvation, even they'll only be taken straight to heaven. And if one heathen soul is saved, would it not be well, would it not be well worthwhile? And then the thought, why, if we're obeying the Lord, the responsibility rests with him, not with us. And he, and he cried out with relief, at thy bidding, as thy servant, I go forward, leaving results with thee. And pencil in hand, he opened his Bible. And with the ocean breaking at his feet, he wrote, prayed for 24 willing, skillful laborers at Brighton, June 25, 1865. The next day, he opened a bank account in the name of the China Inland Mission. The rest is history. There's still 
a China Inland Mission today. It's called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF. It's all over Asia, our part of the world. There are, I'm going to get this wrong, I didn't, I didn't think to, to check this before, but there are at least four generations of Hudson Taylors that have been in Chinese mission work. There's Taylor and then his son and then his grandson. And I think it's Hudson Taylor the fourth who married a woman from Taiwan. And for the first time, Chinese blood entered the Taylor family. And they had a Taylor the fifth, Jamie, and I lost track of what he's doing. But for a while, he was studying at a Bible college here in the States. So for four or five generations, there have been Hudson Taylors involved in Chinese mission work. You know, Taylor found, he found the works God had prepared for him beforehand. I mentioned this guy, George Lyle, earlier. Um, this um, slave in Savannah, Georgia, who was converted in 1773. And he got converted and he began preaching the gospel. He was a powerful evangelist. His owner, a man named Henry Sharp, eventually set him free so he could do evangelistic work. But George Lyle, this is what he says, quote, I requested of my Lord and Master to give me a work. I love that phrase. Give me a work. I requested of my Lord and Master to give me a work. I did not care how mean it was. By mean, he means how low, how common, how basic, how simple. I did not care how mean it was, only to try to see how good I would do it. Lyle started a church in Savannah, Georgia. Then this is Revolutionary War. Some various complications came up because of his own, his owner, his owner's allegiance. And so he was offered a chance to move to Jamaica. He went to Jamaica, started a church in, in, started a church in Jamaica. He trained preachers. He didn't just start a church. He trained preachers. By the time he died in 1826, thousands of Christians were in Jamaica when he died. Here's a man that said, Lord, give me a work. I don't care how low or simple or dirty or ugly it is. Lord, give me a work. God gave him a work. And thousands of people in Jamaica can trace their religious heritage back to this man, George Lyle. Have, have we found, I mean, have you found why God put you on this planet? What are the works God prepared beforehand for you to do? Have you wrestled through on that? Have you ever said to God, like, and by the way, George Lyle actually may be technically the first American foreign missionary. He left America before Adoniram Judson, just a side note. But have you ever got on your face before God and said, Lord, give me a work to do? Give me a work. I mean, really, this this is why this is why God saved you. I and mean, part of it is to showcase His grace, right? Showcase His kindness eternally. You got all these different purposes here, right? I'm not trying to, but just you know, you work through this passage, and God. I mean, here you were dead in your sin. You're a child of wrath, and God just out of His just out of His mercy, love, His grace, He His acts of gracious power 
where he, he brings us to life. He raises us with Christ. He seats us in the heavenlies with Christ. He does all of this. And, and part of his purpose in this is we are now his workmanship. And there are good works which he prepared beforehand for you to do. And what you don't want to do is go through life and never lay hold of those. And you get to the end of your life and you're, you know, you're in a white room with white sheets and white walls and ladies in white walking quietly and the machines are beeping. And you think, boy, what did I do? I wasted, I wasted my life. Now, if you're a believer, if you're one of these that's been brought to life from the dead, like we've been, like we've been talking about, there are works that God has pre-prepared for you to do. You will only do those by God's grace. It's like Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We're not talking about self-effort, self-ambition. We're talking about living by the grace of God. And saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And asking God to give you a work. And by his grace, doing it and not saying no. Because we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto unto good works. Which God has pre-prepared for us to do. Let's pray. Father, oh, we just think of all you've done. Your grace, your gracious power in reaching down to us even when we were still in our, still dead in our transgressions and our sins. And as your workmanship, the least we can do is cry out and say, Lord, give me a work. Lord, show me what you created me to do. Lord, let me do those works. Not to be saved, but because you've saved me. Lord, would you lay upon us the desire to seek a work from you and for you. And I pray that you would help us to wrestle through with you. Lord, give us a work. Give me a work. Give us grace. Give us strength. Give us health. Give us needed resources. Lord, not to burn up on ourselves. Lord, deliver us from that. But Lord, give us all we need by your grace to do those works you've prepared beforehand for us to do. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to lay hold of your grace and not make excuses. By your grace, work harder because of that undeserved divine enablement. So, Lord, 
take these truths from this passage, take these words, these phrases, these clauses, and by your spirit, help them to live in our hearts and renew our minds. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.